This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. And today we're talking with two of my partners who are both former United States Department of Justice attorneys, former prosecutors in the uh, U.S. Justice Department. And we're going to be talking about a question which I find is on everybody's lips as I travel the world. And, and I tell people uh, that we think that uh, the chances are the former president is going to be convicted in one of these four criminal trials, four criminal cases that are pending against him, which was the subject of a previous previous podcast, which we did with Steve Madison and Rob Zink, who are joining us today. But everybody asks, what's next? And a lot of Americans want to know, what's next? If Donald Trump is convicted in one of these trials, if he's a convicted felon, can he still be president? Uh, will that affect his candidacy? What are the consequences of a former president and presidential candidate, Republican nominee, being convicted of a felony? And I think Steve and Rob are going to tell us a lot of this is uh, uncharted territory. I mean, we don't know answers. We don't have a lot of precedent for this. We haven't had a former president convicted of a felony. We haven't had a presidential candidate convicted of a felony, I don't think. So let's begin by reviewing the four cases which we discussed in our previous uh, podcast, the New York case, the DC case, the Georgia case, the Florida case, and what the status of those cases are and, and what the trial dates are. Steve, perhaps you can kick it off. Thanks, John. It's great to be back on Law Disrupted with you and Rob on this fascinating topic. And as you said, a lot of this is uncharted territory, but let's jump in. To sort of knock the rust off, there are four pending criminal cases against Donald Trump, and first time in the history of the republic when any president or former president has been charged criminally. Probably the closest we came was Watergate when Richard Nixon uh, left office in disgrace and President Ford uh, did pardon him, uh, essentially avoiding any criminal charges. But here, let's remember, we have four cases, criminal cases against Trump, two federal, two state. Now, on the federal side, we have uh, probably the most prominent cases, the Washington, D.C., January 6th case for election interference, so-called January 6th case. And then the second federal case is in the Southern District of Florida in a, the division in Fort Pierce, Florida. And that's the classified documents case involving the boxes of documents that were allegedly found in Trump's uh, home in Mar-a-Lago containing classified information that he legally ought not to have taken with him when he stepped away from the White House. And then the two, two state court cases are uh, New York, and that is the um, business records case involving so-called uh, payments or hush money payments that were made when he was a candidate running for president uh, before the 2016 election. And then in uh, Georgia, we have an election interference case sort of mirroring the Washington January 6th case, but showing or allegedly showing what Trump was up to in Georgia. And uh, so those are the four cases in terms of the trial dates. And I know Rob will talk about uh, some of the other implications, but just quickly, so we have this timeline in our in our mind. The last week in the New York business records case, the so-called hush money case, 
the judge denied Trump's motion to postpone the trial and adhered to the March 25th trial date. So that is the first case that's up for trial. March 25th, as we all know as trial lawyers, that's right around the corner. And then the Florida federal court trial involving the classified documents uh, allegedly at Mar-a-Lago is presently scheduled for May 2024. No trial date has been set in the Georgia state court case, but it will be no earlier than July or August of 2024, probably later with all the problems that that case is now revealed. The January 6th case, the Washington, D.C. case, which probably should be first, is that's Jack Smith, the independent counsel, and probably goes to the heart of the matter more than any of the other cases. That one is completely in limbo because the trial date has been vacated, and the case is presently in the U.S. Supreme Court on the question of whether uh, Trump has immunity that would uh, essentially prevent that case from going forward. So those are the four cases and the four dates. And what's so interesting as we turn to Rob now is that if we overlay those trial dates, first time in history, uh, Trump is again a candidate. And so these relate uh, very closely to the November 2024 election and the primaries. So, Rob, what, what are the deadlines that we're going to be looking at in the in the political realm, the nominations, the candidacy, and how do those line up with these trial dates? Yeah. Well, John, uh, Steve, great to be with you guys, as always. Um, as it relates to the political dates, they're, they're important to keep in mind, especially when juxtaposed against the trial dates. So here's what they are. March 5th, it's going to be Super Tuesday. July 15th through 18th is the Republican National Convention, which is an important date, which we'll talk about in a second. November 5th is the uh, national presidential election. And then December 17th is when uh, the electors will cast their votes. And so I would just highlight for everybody's consideration, July 15th to the 18th, that is the Republican National Convention. Uh, To the extent that they're would be or could be an appetite to replace um, former President Trump as the the nominee, it would occur during that time period. And I think we might be able to envision a scenario where he is a felon at that point in time. So there there could be an appetite to 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 make a move on him during the convention. Not likely in my view, but but possible. I mean, is there even the machinery and the uh, and the party rules? to replace him at that point. Do you know? I mean, this is not, maybe not strictly speaking a, a legal question that goes to kind of the Republican Party's um, internal rules and processes. But but maybe maybe you could shed some light on that. Yes. Yeah, so, so I don't know for sure. My understanding is that there is playing the joints with respect to what can be done during the convention, especially whereas here you might have a the, the, the candidate, the otherwise clear and obvious candidate being a uh, a felon. Right. I mean, I guess you'd have to have the ability to have a candidate nominated from the floor. Correct. Uh, um, since it doesn't look like we're going, nobody's going to be winning enough uh, delegates to the convention to have a, a a majority or even to be on the ballot going in. So somehow there would have to be something happen on the floor. Yeah, that's right. I understand, John. So let's let's assume then, you know, that he is 
convicted, what are the most likely immediate consequences of that? I mean, first off, let's talk about is it likelihood that there will be a trial before the election? You you do have the case in Manhattan, the hush money case, which is set for trial in March 25. The judge said, I think within the last week, that jury selection will will start on March 25. As, as you said, uh, Steve, the Florida case, classified documents case at present has a trial date of May 20. The other two cases don't have trial dates. I mean, what is the likelihood that we're actually going to have a trial before the election? Well, the judge in New York has been steadfast that he is going to trial. And he's got a record for us to judge because this same judge, uh, Juan Mershon, has presided over some related cases. Uh, he's got the case uh, against Steve Bannon that's pending, although hasn't gone to trial yet. He had uh, another case against the Trump organization last year, a criminal case uh, in which the, uh, the sort of uh, organization was uh, found guilty and a big fine was imposed, but not Trump personally. Uh, the controller of that outfit was also personally convicted there. So he's pretty steadfast that he's going to continue to go to trial, and it's unlikely that the New York appellate courts would intervene. Uh, Trump may try um, a federal gambit, but I, my recollection is he's already tried that in New York and it hasn't gotten traction. What do you mean by a federal gambit? Well, uh, some sort of habeas uh, petition or writ mm. uh, asking the federal courts to intervene and to block the trial. And for Trump, even a stay would be a, a remedy of sorts because, as Rob outlined, what's so important right now is that Trump uh, be able to stand for election. This also relates to the recent Colorado case where uh, the state of Colorado legislature decided that Trump could not be on the ballot because he was uh, guilty, if you will, of uh, sedition and insurrection in connection with January 6th. Now, that has been overturned. Um, I, well, it will be overturned by the Supreme Court. The, the oral the, yeah, there was the oral argument in the Supreme Court, and by all the reports that uh, judgment received kind of very a lot of skepticism from the Supreme Court, including some of the justices, liberals justices, who didn't yes. kind of raise the question of how does the state get off uh, making a decision on who can be eligible to be on the ballot for the presidential, federal presidential uh, primary. Especially when it's a subjective finding uh, based on no criminal conviction or what have you. It might be a different case after the January 6th criminal case goes to trial if Trump were convicted, but that's not going to happen. Uh, again, the Supreme Court uh, holds the keys to that because uh, that case is pending there. So, um, but, you know, one has to wonder uh, of any of these convictions. But remember, in New York, the conduct alleged is uh, for pre-presidential conduct by candidate Trump. And so my sense is it will not have too much effect politically on him. It will be akin to, you know, Gene Carroll got an $88 million defamation verdict against Trump just in the last couple of weeks. Um, Judge Engeron uh, fined Trump north of $350 million for various uh, fraud-related offenses, uh, civil offenses. So uh, this New York case, probably, even though it's a criminal case, probably falls more into uh, the category of these uh, you know, financial allegations, which Trump uh, just 
uses to double down and, and repeat his message that he's being politically persecuted. But there are some very nuts and bolts, you know, legal uh, consequences of a felony conviction, especially on 34 counts, which is what the, the New York case charges with, you know, if you added up all the years in prison, it could be hundreds of years. So uh, we thought we might talk a little bit just about sort of Crim Law 101. And I think as we do that, we'll probably have a, a sort of dichotomy here between what normally happens and what might happen with Trump. And this is pretty true across the board, John, in terms of the mm-hmm. state or federal cases. Procedures differ a little bit, but by and large, they're all uh, the same. All right. So, I mean, before we get to that, it sounds like we're going to have a trial uh, in New York uh, before the election. We have that May 20 trial date in the federal court in Florida. Do you think that one will hold or is there no way of knowing? Yeah. So right now, John, there is a pending motion to continue by the former president's legal team. Um, You might remember that the judge, Judge Cannon, in that case is a Trump appointee. has been seen to have made a, a couple of decidedly pro-Trump rulings, including the appointment of a special master, which at the time was perceived to be favorable for the former president. Um, as Steve alluded to before, that that trial, if it goes, is set to take place in Fort Pierce, which is a division of the Southern District of Florida, which is leans decidedly Republican. Um, with all that said, it's just my guess, based on the facts and circumstances, that Judge Cannon will likely continue that trial, the May 20th trial to a date TBD in the summertime or fall, um, leaving the Manhattan one, in my view, as, a, as one that's definitely going to happen in the next couple months. Um, SDFL not likely to happen, I think, until the end of the summer, early fall, if at all, then. That, that's the Florida one. Correct. That's the Florida one. And then uh, in contrast, you have the, the District of Columbia case, the January 6th case, as, as we call it. Um, in that case, you have Judge Chuckin, who is, um, I think, by anybody's estimation, no, no fan of the former president, um, has sentenced other, I shouldn't say other, but January 6th defendants to significant terms of incarceration. And I, I think the, the view is that if there is a prompt decision by the Supreme Court before their term expires, that she would set a trial date uh, this summer. I think that's kind of the, the prevailing view. So. Once again, Manhattan case likely to happen in March. SDFL case, that's the Florida case, I think unlikely to happen in the immediate future. The District of Columbia case likely to happen sometime this spring. I'm sorry, sometime this summer. And then that leaves us with the Fulton County case, which I'll I'll kick that to Steve. This is the Georgia case. 17 defendants, kind of a circus. It's gotten balled up now in an issue about (laughs) whether there was an affair between the appointed special counsel and I guess, is it the attorney general or assistant attorney general? State's attorney or district attorney. I mean, for the like of me, I don't understand the relevance of that, but uh, it's in the news every day. We've got three defendants who have pled, and presumably uh, maybe cooperating uh, with the government. So that's likely to be a circus, Steve. Any insight as to where that's likely to go to trial? Not anytime soon would be my estimation because uh, the, the selection of this special prosecutor who is compensated for his work at a time when the appointing authority, the district attorney, was involved in a, a personal relationship and likely received some of the benefits of those 
payments to the special prosecutor. That's that's not a small issue. It is a, a complete uh, sort of digression from the allegations in the claim. But uh, you know, folks may not ever understand RICO or what the seventeen different defendants are charged with. They will understand that if there's corruption on the part of the district attorney. Okay, so the theory is that the the district attorney was having a relationship with this special counsel who she appointed, and that uh, he's being paid, and that she's getting some of the benefits of that. I guess because they went on trips together, they went to Vegas or something like that. Although she said he, it was all everything was de- every meal was Dutch. They paid their own way. She says she didn't get anything, but. I see. Uh, I now understand what you're saying and, and what the criticism is there. And one of the friends of both of them just testified under oath that the relationship actually began long before they have both testified or averred it did begin. And that's a significant issue. Like so many cases, if the underlying conduct isn't enough, then there's misstatements and misrepresentations and cover up around the conduct. So. It's and it's just uh, mana from heaven for Trump because it reinforces everything that he will say about Georgia and about the um, the charges. So, am I am I right that kind of the the analysis is his relationship with her by 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 her appointing him and them having a pre existing relationship? The die had already been cast, at least in Trump's view, as to his decision to charge. That is to say. They had a relationship, she appointed him, and there was no objective determination about whether you know, charges should be initiated. It was, it was a fait accompli of sorts. Well, and you could see the defense having a field day with that. I mean, here they're on a, a getaway to Las Vegas. I think one or both of them may have been in a marriage that was ending at the time. And are they talking about the case? Are they talking about grand jury secret material when they're strolling through the uh, you know, concourse at Caesar's Palace, you know, just all sorts of fertile ground for uh, pushing and probing. And it's hard to believe that that special prosecutor or the DA will be with the case when it goes to trial. I have to think that judicial intervention will re- result in the replacement of those, of both of those players, especially now that they allegedly have lied about material facts. Really? You wonder then why they don't just resign? And let this let this go forward. Absolutely. Okay. Well, at least in the re- in the present posture, it sounds like there's a lot of reasons to think that. I mean, that one is not going to get even get started anytime soon. So maybe that one doesn't go to trial before the election. Yeah. But TBD. So let's turn now to uh, the subject you started to talk about, Steve. Uh, the immediate effect of a conviction in in one of these cases. What what will be the the consequences of that in the short term? So obviously, Trump is at liberty on bond or on bail, as we refer it, uh, to it. Um, but if there is a conviction by a jury, and of course it has to be unanimous, it has to be twelve jurors. These are constitutional prescriptions for criminal cases in our country, certainly for felonies. And uh, beyond a reasonable doubt, a a jury convicts him, then a lot of those pretrial presumptions now shift and Trump will have the burden. So the very first thing will be, uh, you know, you're not sentenced, uh, the defendant's not sentenced immediately upon the jury entering a conviction in, in this day and age. There's a whole 
process. So the very first question the court will have to answer is, should Trump remain at liberty on bond? And the burden will have then shifted to Trump to show, you know, the the two-prong showing on bail pretty much anywhere is uh, safety of the community. Do we need to detain the defendant in custody to protect the community? And that can be physical violence or economic um, harm um, and possibly even other types of harms. And then number two, is the defendant a flight risk? And I think in this case, Trump will have a hard time sustaining the burden on either of those. Uh, Clearly, this is a guy kind of like a human wrecking ball, at least in the financial fraud area. And um, some would say he's done a lot of damage in, in other respects as well. And then a flight risk. I mean, this is such a unique case with the deposed, um, you know, former president. Remember on on uh, inauguration day, every, you know, the, the history of our republic is peaceful transition of power for 240 years, 250 years until 2020. And he snuck out the back door of the White House, got on a helicopter and claimed uh, that he'd actually won and, and disappeared. So you wonder a guy like that, if he's now convicted and he really sees the, the walls closing in, maybe he flies to Russia and hangs out with Putin. You know, there's a precedent <laughs> for that in other cases. Well, I, 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 let me take issue with that, Steve. Sure. On the first one, the human wrecking ball and could he do economic damage? I mean, even if he's behind bars, he can run his businesses. He can do, you know, whatever accounting machinations or, you know, whatever improper things he's done in 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 causing economic harm from in a jail cell i don't i don't think uh you know locking him up prevents him from doing that and the idea that he'd be a flight risk uh <laughs> i mean he is probably the most one of the most watched people on earth it's hard to imagine uh how this guy could conceive that he could go anywhere and get anywhere and hide uh, but I suppose you're going to tell me that the improbability of that doesn't mean it isn't a real risk. It's just with this guy, there's no precedent, right? And so um, where a lot of this heads, and we're jumping ahead a little bit, but let's 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 do that. Is sort of uh, you know everything leads to a constitutional crisis because as the former president and now as a significant candidate for president again, he's got full-time, 24-hour uh, Secret Service protection. And what if the judge were to order him remanded? Now the uh, Secret Service has to go with him wherever he goes, whatever that means. And um, it gets complicated very quickly. So bottom line, I don't think that even Judge Mershon would remand him right at that moment. But, and by, re- by remand, you mean it would put him in uh, custody? Right. The, the jury verdicts return and the defendant goes out the back door, not the front door, because he's escorted right into custody. I don't think that'll happen realistically. So most defendants who are on bond, who make all of their court appearances, are not remanded. So let's assume for the moment that he remains on bond. And what would then happen is a probation report would be prepared. There's a probation interview about the sentence. What's the appropriate sentence now for this convicted felon? And it's a confidential report, but the court has it, and the DA has it, and the defense has it. And then there would be a sentencing date, probably six to 12 weeks after the conviction. 
And talk about a, a Kodak moment for those of us old enough to remember that expression. Here you'd have uh, a candidate, the former president, now appearing at his criminal sentencing. He has the right of allocution. The defendant has the right to address the court himself. Would he do that? Uh, what would the recommendation, sentencing recommendations, would, would, what would those look like? And then that gets us into the issues that Rob's going to speak about uh, in terms of how do you sentence Donald Trump? So just, just before we get to that, just in terms of the timeline, if we're talking about, let's say, the New York case going to trial on March 25th, uh, you and I have talked about this. In the case like this, jury selection, I think you told me, could take longer than the trial itself. I mean, so let's say between jury selection and the trial, it's a four-week, five-week process. You know, that gets us into May. Let's say it's mid-May. Then you've got to do the probation report and have the hearing. You were right to early July now. At some point in July, he's having this sentencing hearing, roughly. Yep, I think that's right. Uh, right around the time as the Republican convention's approaching and, and the primary season's over. so. Yeah. High drama for sure. Yeah. And you know, it's important to note that, you know, there is substantial latitude given to district court judges in setting a sentencing date. It's not prescribed by statute or any rule. And so the the common wisdom, as Steve has said, is typically sixty to ninety days after convent after conviction, a sentencing date will be set. But just a couple of things to keep in mind. Now, I personally have had cases where the court has set sentencing for because of the court's calendar for various prudential reasons out six months to eight months. It's kind of point number one. So the judge has wide latitude. And then number two, there can be no sentencing until this, this it's called a PSR, the probation's report is completed. So under the rules, as soon as that report is done, you got to tack on 35 more days to give the defendant an opportunity to, to respond. So you've got two kind of variables at stake here, which is when's the court going to set the sentencing date? And then number two, how long is it going to take um, probation to figure out what the report says? Again, I've had cases where the probation office has not been quick. They've been backloaded and it could take months. Now, I would not expect that to happen given the the profile and nature of this this defendant. But you could see a situation where, you know, the probation officer takes two or three months to do it for whatever reason. Right. And the court decides to set a sentencing out past November for whatever reason. Right. So it wouldn't be surprising to you then if this sort of drags out into next fall. No, John, it would really depend on who who the judge is mm-hmm. and what the judge's kind of uh, most important considerations are. And remember, Judge Marshawn is the judge in New York and he's denied continuances. He's sticking to the March 25. I have to think he's going to expedite things and coincidentally or not have have all of this come down around the time of uh, August or so, uh, right in the prime convention and campaign season. I t- totally agree with that. If we're, if we're just reading tea leaves here, you'd expect the Manhattan sentencing to occur well before the national election. Mm-hmm. I would be incredibly surprised if there is a trial in Florida that would happen before the election. Um, conversely, if there's a conviction in the District of Columbia, Given the proclivities of the judge, I would expect there to be a sentencing before the election. Uh-huh. All right. So one of these cases, let's say there's going to be, let's, he's convicted, the report's done, the sentencing date is scheduled, and he gets a sentence. Uh, 
I guess we can't really speculate about what the sentence is going to be. You, I, we'd have to know what exactly he's being convicted of. But is there a range that you can tell us? Yeah. So, John, that's this. This is for me. The range is a complicated one. Um, he. It, it just depends on there. There's something called the United States Sentencing Guidelines, which advise a federal district court judge about where uh, to sentence a defendant. So, let's just say uh, the former president is con- convicted of. Um, one of the counts of conviction, which carries with it a 10-year term, zero to 10. The federal district judge has wide latitude where within that statutory range to sentence the defendant. It's based on these guidelines. And it's a very, very complicated analysis. But I, I think suffice to say the range is anywhere from you know five to 20 years conservatively. So he's looking at it real time by anybody's estimation, at least with respect to the January 6th case, which would be the most likely federal case to proceed. Um, the, the real issue in my mind is not necessarily the sentence he's going to receive, which I would imagine in the federal cases would be substantial. Although I do want to talk about the sentence in the state cases in a second. The real issue is, well, what happens? What physically happens to him the second the judge says you've been sentenced to X amount of time? And as Steve alluded to before, John, you know, in in the federal system, you're innocent to proven guilty, so there's a presumption in favor of not of no detention up until you're convicted. But once you're convicted, as Steve said, that shifts, and so now it's on him to to show really three things. This is sentencing. He's got to show that he's not a flight risk, he's not a danger, and and to stay out pending appeal, he's got to show that there are substantial questions of factor law likely to result in reversal. But just say that again. So a district court to keep him out pending appeal has to find not a flight risk, not a danger, and there are substantial questions of factor law likely to result in a reversal. It's a pretty high bar. Yeah. And it's a pretty rare situation for that to happen. Now and most of the time with an appeal pending, convicted criminal defendants go or go to jail. Go, with with one exception. It's either go that day. So you're sentenced, you go right to jail out the back back door, as Steve said. Or you're given a report date. The judge sometimes will afford criminal defendants, typically in white collar cases, time to go home, get their affairs in order until they're designated to a specific prison facility. And then they've got to self-report there to that prison facility. Okay. One other thing I would would kick to Steve, which is the, the Manhattan case is really interesting to me because the charges at issue at their core are the falsification of corporate books and records. Um, specifically, the hush money payments were miscategorized as not hush uh, money payments, but something else. But that that violation is actually only a misdemeanor. It's only when that violation is coupled with another aggravating felony that it becomes a felony. And the the aggravating felony is election fraud, and that's that might be difficult to prove. And so you might be stuck with the situation in Manhattan, where you have the former president being convicted of a whole spate of misdemeanors. Right. As I, as I understand, the way that works is the theory of the election fraud is these payments were made in order to preserve his candidacy for the presidency, and therefore they should be reported uh, uh, and treated as such under election finance rules. Fe- federal election finance rules. So you have a state county court here having a jury adjudicate, you know, the violation of state law in connection with a violation of federal campaign finance law. So, you know, my only point is you could see a situation where he's convicted of 
the books and records violations on their own, which are misdemeanors. Yeah. And it's so interesting, right? Because in state law, it, you know, federal guidelines apply that Rob mentioned, um, and there's a complicated calculation, although even those now uh, are subject to the discretion, wide discretion of federal judges. But in state court, it's sort of, you know, anything goes, as I understand in New York. And you include things like a victim impact statement. In most states, including New York, the victim has a right to make a, um, a statement to the court and sometimes even appear and address the court at sense, be present and the like. So who's the victim? Is it Hillary Clinton? Would she come and uh, or present a statement, a written statement, come to a sentence? Uh, again, all uncharted territory in the case of uh, Donald Trump. Do you know what the range of the sentence or the penalty could be for if it's a misdemeanor alone on the New York charges? It's, it's misdemeanor definitionally is under a year. Okay. So it's not a whole lot of time, which is why it's an interesting thing to think about. Mm-hmm. Are you really going to send him away free election on a misdemeanor? You know, in, in Virginia, where I happen to drive all the time, if you're over 20 miles an hour, it's, it's a gross misdemeanor. Yeah. So, you know, you're really going to send the president of the United States, former president of the United States away free election on something that, you know, is in many states a significant traffic violation. Hopefully you mean more than 20 miles above the speed limit, not right. 20 miles. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, and, and, we're, and we're hoping you're not speaking from, per- and assume you're not speaking I, from personal experience. Gentlemen, right? it's, it's a matter of public record. I, I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right, so you alluded to the fact, uh, Steve, that uh, as a former president, he's entitled to Secret Service protection for life, yeah. which then raises this bizarre prospect you alluded to of the former president being behind bars accompanied with Secret Service protection. It's, um, you know, really the, the stuff of, of Hollywood. Um, so you have 24-hour Secret Service protection, and let's assume for a moment that the state court imposes a custodial sentence. That means a prison or jail. And uh, so now, how does that work with the Secret Service? You know, I think most people are picturing sort of TV movie images of prisons, you know, with the big open area and the weights and the inside there's a catwalk around two stories of cells and the inmates holding mirrors out between the bars to communicate with one another. Will there be like eight guys in suits wandering around in that environment with the the former president? Um, Probably the court, if it came to it, would strive, and certainly at the federal level, I think this is, is true, Uh, But even in state court, you know, I I can't imagine Donald Trump being sent to Rikers Island with a cadre of Secret Service agents. But uh, perhaps the court looks at some sort of really robust home detention where the the court is going to either send him to his home with stern conditions of of custody and all the rest uh, that then work side by side with the Secret Service. Or perhaps they take an existing facility and convert it uh, to something in the in the manner of a private prison you know Hannibal Lecter mm-hmm. style you know um, yeah or, or like the who was the Escobar in uh, Colombia yeah. who agreed to turn himself in and go to jail if he could build his own have his own run his own jail right. yeah <laughs> or you know what it puts me in mind of is when Arnold Schwarzenegger was governor of California 
I mean, he was small. He's famous uh, for his lo- love of cigars, and of course, you couldn't smoke cigars in this in the state house building. So he set up this elaborate tent out in the courtyard, and that's basically where he did business. People, assemblymen, they came to see him, lobbyists, whatever. He ran the state of California from this big tent uh, on the grounds of the state house, so he could smoke cigars. Yeah. But let's let's continue with this idea that so the New York case goes first, he's convicted, and now he's given a custodial sentence, some kind of prison or jail or home detention or private prison that is is constructed for him. But remember, he's also running for president, and you know, by some lights it looks like he's gonna win. So meanwhile, in the middle of all this, let's just assume that he's given a prison sentence and the court uh, allows the sentence to commence after November when the election occurs. And he wins. So now uh, maybe he doesn't go back to the state of New York and the state of New York has to issue a warrant and send out their police to apprehend this uh, defendant who's absconded, is the term. And he's down in Washington, protected not only now by Secret Service, but he's the president-elect. And then in January, he's the president. Because remember, there's no prohibition against a convicted felon from occupying the office of president, except for that constitutional um, provision that says if you have engaged in insurrection, you can't be the president, which is really like a Confederate you know, civil war remedy. Yeah. And as we said, we think the Supreme Court, based upon the way that hearing went, is likely to throw that out. So, well, they'll throw it out in Colorado on a subjective legislative judgment. They would, I think, also throw it out based on a New York conviction uh, arising out of his pre-presidential duties. Uh, You know, the hush money to, you know, Playboy bunnies and the like is not insurrection under any they may have a different view later on the january 6th trial because that pretty clearly it's hard to to call that anything but insurrection but just coming back to the immediate now so here he's convicted so new york then has to seek extradition of the president from washington dc and not to be too melodramatic but you literally could have a constitutional crisis here where a state comes to Washington to take uh, you know, physical custody of the president, and the president directs the executive branch as the commander-in-chief. He directs them to resist that, that effort. Uh, that all ends up in the courts, presumably, but even the courts don't have the power to compel somebody like Trump, perhaps, uh, who is uh, you know, a prisoner in the White House at that point with the the military and the uh, the Secret Service outside and the marshals and all the rest. Uh, it's it's unimaginable, except all this is unimaginable. Yeah. Right? Uh, you, know, yeah. you know, Steve, I, of all the scenarios I think we'll discuss today, this one, certainly don't want to speak for you, but I think we're probably in agreement. This is the most likely of the scenarios, which is he's convicted in Manhattan County Court. I think that's that's the wisdom just banked based on the, the jury makeup and how things have gone in New York for him generally over the last two years. And if you look at the general election polling, he's ahead of Biden in most polls. So let's just assume he is convicted Manhattan and he wins and he's the president of the United States. Um, 
there, it is very, very possible that the Manhattan judge will give him a report date and he will not show up, right? That is, that is a very, very possible scenario. I think um, his able lawyers will no doubt file something in federal court to try to enjoin any action by New York State under any variety of federal theories, separation of powers, supremacy clause. But that, that in, in the panoply of scenarios, I think that one is, I should say in the panoply of bad scenarios, that is the most likely one to, to occur. Well, can, can the New York judge sentence him, but uh, defer his report date until after the end of his term as president? Great question. Great question. Um, the answer is, I don't know New York state law um, uh, the way certainly others do, but I, I would imagine there is a way to do it. I would imagine there is a way to do it. I agree. And uh, so, um, and, but one thing we should definitely cover is he can't pardon himself out. Yeah, I was going to talk about, people always ask that. I mean, what does all this matter if he's elected, he pardons himself, right? Not a, for a state crime. He does okay. not, have, you know, it's a dual sovereignty, right? He can pardon, uh, and by the way, it's not even clear because of the lack of uh, this ever occurring historically, it's not even clear that one can pardon oneself. Although I think the answer to that probably is yes, in the absence of an express. I mean, nobody's ever tried to do that. They have not. No, even Richard Nixon didn't try to do that before he left office, probably because he had a handshake with George, uh, Gerald Ford that, that Ford would, would pardon him, which he did. Yeah. So here, he might be able to pardon himself federally, but not for state. For state, only the governor of New York can pardon. And remember, in Georgia, it's the same thing, except there's a catch, which is, because Georgia's got a Republican governor who might be otherwise inclined, but under the law of Georgia, a pardon can only be imposed five years after the conviction. So it would, really, that's it would, not much of a pardon. <laughs> not much of, of a pardon for Donald Trump, certainly. Yeah. And and Steve, as you had noted to me, the so federal system, he probably can pardon himself. Unknown question, but we think he can. Georgia would take five years. And New York governor has the power, but it's not happening, right? It's not happening. <laughs> right. So, you know, again, in our most likely scenario where he's convicted in Manhattan and elected president, he's pardon is not going to be a viable option for him. Hmm. Well, so how does the conviction, how do you think a conviction affects the campaign and his performance as president? Well, I think the New York case, I think the cases are different in that respect. In New York, I think uh, this is old news, right? That he right. paid hush money. And the star witness in that case is Michael Cohen, the defrocked former lawyer and fixer for Donald Trump. And essentially, the, the, you can state the theme of the case in one sentence. Basically, Trump was paying off women to keep quiet so he could run for president. And the way he did that is he gave the money uh, to Michael Cohen, or Michael Cohen advanced the money. And then Trump later claimed on his books and records that those were legal fees, when in fact they weren't. They were payments of, uh, to the actual uh, women. So uh, that's old news to the Trump, the, the residents of Trumpistan, right? The people that, that uh, ride or die with Donald Trump. And I think, you know, as I've thought about it, it so much of this is about uh, values and integrity and sort of um, probity. The, the folks, by and large, who support Trump 
that's almost irrelevant. It's like we're speaking French to them when we talk about these things, because in some way of speaking, they want to burn the whole thing down in terms of big government. And these are people that feel that they've been left behind. And so, you know, do you care if an arsonist is uh, a misogynist? No. Uh, And I think, uh, so for, by and large, I don't know that politically it'll hurt him that much. I would hope there is some margin, even among the Trump acolytes, who would say, this is too far. Like, we can't elect a, I can't vote for a convicted, certainly a convicted felon. Um, and, and the, you know, the losses now are starting to mount rapidly for Trump you know, in terms of the various civil uh, findings against him, the defamation, the, the bank fraud. Uh, so forth and so on. I would hope this might be the last drop, at least for some folks, but one never knows. Yeah, my my view of it is is similar, which is um, the battle line. Well, number one, after the Trump indictments, you saw little marginal bounces for him. So that's increases in popularity. Marginal, but still there. Um, that's point number one. Point number two is the battle lines in this in our great country have already been drawn. And I think, you know, a conviction of Donald Trump would only serve to um, embolden his campaign. And I think what you have is folks who otherwise might not have been terribly motivated to get out to vote, get out to vote. So ironically, you know, given the battle lines are drawn and the bases are where they are, sending him to prison might, um, inflame the passions of folks who otherwise wouldn't vote to vote for Donald Trump. Um, I guess my, my global point, the thing that has me most concerned is this is really a, a moment in time for our, for our country and our system. And I would say this regardless of who the president um, under investigation is, whether Democrat or Republican, sending a former president of the United States to prison during the pendency of a federal election um, or after he is elected president is just um, something I just don't think we ought to be doing. And I would hope, as you alluded to before, John, there would be some play in the joints for a reasonable jurist to kick his period of incarceration until after he was to serve a a term as president of the United States. For him to serve as president from prison is just um, certainly not a good look for for our republic. Right. No, I, I, uh, you know, this always puts me in mind of the, of Ford pardoning Nixon. I can I can remember that whole period. I remember the building anger uh, and, and complete contempt for Nixon as his lies kind of unraveled the way things played out. And there was a very strong feeling uh, in the country that that were something ought to be done. Uh, and I I was personally unhappy at the time when when uh, Ford pardoned him. But looking back on that in retrospect, we, we the country turned the page and we moved on. And I think it was clearly the right thing to do. I don't know if there's any way something like that happens here, uh, rather than this, uh, you know, this ongoing uh, battle which plays out in more fronts. And you talk about the New York uh, officers going to D.C. to try to arrest the president, and you know the constitutional crisis that would bring about. I just hope there's some way to avoid all that, even if it means passing on deserved uh, retribution or penalties against the uh, ex-president. I mean, the, so there are bigger issues at stake here 
than uh, you know, you know, giving uh, Donald Trump his just desserts. I guess is what I would say. Well, and if I could just maybe offer a slightly different perspective. Uh, Richard Nixon you know, went off into the dustbin of history after that part. Uh, although later, interestingly, he sort of resurrected his reputation in some respect. Right. Uh, not, you know, he didn't then drive down Pennsylvania Avenue on inauguration day. And I think for the majority of Americans, the idea that uh, we live in a nation of laws, not men, that we would make an exception for this guy so that he could uh, be the most powerful person in the world and, and the leader of the free world just goes down too hard and and it's not our fault it's his fault right that he he's committed these crimes if he has and uh, you talk about instability in the country but i agree with rob i'm really worried about the republic again for 250 years we've had peaceful transitions of power behind democratic elections until this guy mm. and believe me putin and uh, every other a bad actor in the world is watching very carefully yeah. uh, for how we're going to weather this. I mean, with with other individuals, you might see a scenario where a deal is cut where, okay, you don't have to serve any time or, you know, you're pardoned or whatever. We wipe the slate clean, but you don't serve as president. You know, you step down um, somehow. But as you say, with this guy, I'm not sure that happens he seems to relish uh bringing things to a head in a bigger and bigger way look the, the way the way to avoid this whole crisis is he just loses right yes yeah and i was going to say the judge could also impose if there was a probationary term either in and of itself or as a tail to a, a custodial sentence the judge could impose a condition that you not serve in public office right and that would be up, upheld uh, by the courts by the way, that's actually fascinating. I, I know we got to cut out, but that's actually, we hadn't discussed that. That's actually a mm -hmm. fascinating, fascinating, fascinating concept, which is the judge sentences him, says, I'm not going to send you to jail. I'm going to give you a five-year term of probation, which is the max allowed. Mm -hmm. But John, as a condition of probation, the judge has wide latitude and mm -hmm. kind of fashioning conditions. You could imagine the condition is you can't hold public office. Mm -hmm. All right, well, you may, you may have already answered this, but uh, I just want to ask you both. Uh, what do you think is the most likely scenario here? How does this play out? Maybe begin with you, Steve, and then Rob, I'm interested in your response. I think um, that the most likely scenario is, because after all, this is a rematch, Biden and Trump. And it's hard for me to imagine that uh, things have gotten better for Trump this time around. So I think the most likely political outcome is that Biden defeats Trump and is reelected and that all this legal stuff, you know, waxes and wanes and pops up or doesn't. The, the most important cases, you know, the uh, the insurrection cases federally in D.C. and stateside in Georgia will not be decided before uh, November. And I think the others will have little impact. How exactly how they'll have that that less impact is is hard to predict but i think that that probably is most likely and then i would hope at that point president biden would would pardon trump <laughs> i know this goes down hard pardon him federally and use his political power to uh, obtain state pardons and just relegate him to um 
the worst state that he can imagine, which is not being the center of attention anymore. <laughs> Rob? So I, I kind of foreshadowed it. Um, I think he is likely to be convicted in Manhattan. And he has uh, actually fantastic counsel, an individual named Todd Blanche. But I think the uphill road that Todd faces with his client is, is going to be tough to overcome. So I think he's convicted in Manhattan. And I'm looking at, I'm kind of taking no position on who's going to win the election other than to say, as of today, I'm looking at the latest poll at Trump at 49 and Trump and Biden at 47. So if that holds, I think the most likely scenario would be you have a state felon um, or potentially misdemeanors, but likely a state felon as president of the United States of America. Wow. Well, this is all surreal. Really appreciate the thought that you've put into this, uh, this unprecedented uh, state of affairs that we're facing and, and giving us your best analysis of how this might play out. Thank you very much, gentlemen. This is John Quinn. This has been Law Disrupted. We've been speaking with two former United States Department of Justice prosecutors, Steve Madison and Rob Zink, about what happens if Donald Trump is convicted. This is John Quinn, Law Disrupted. Thank you for listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and review on your chosen podcast app. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, you can sign up for email alerts at our website, law-disrupted.fm, or follow me on x at jbqlaw.com or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in.